The spin is supported by NatWest. Why? Because NatWest loves cricket. The skills it teaches and the communities it creates and want it to be easy for everyone to get involved. To find out about how NatWest is helping make cricket open to all, search NatWest Cricket. It's the spin! 13 years ago, I got my first ever newspaper job, working for The Observer on their Sport Monthly magazine. And one of my tasks was to persuade The Observer's very busy sports writers that what they really wanted to do with their rare time off covering matches was to write long reads for the magazine. And that's how I first met Vic Marks. He was an ex-England cricketer and one of the best-loved voices on Test Match Special. I was in my 20s and a very junior editor, so I had to fight the inclination to call him Sir. In fact, I soon learned that Vic was the kindest and most genial person in the press box, and I like to think it's because he's from Somerset. Some of my all-time favourite cricket writers come from the West Country. Matthew Engel, Shil Berry, David Foote and Frank Keating. And one of the things all their work has in common is its warmth and its generosity. So, we've headed to the Somerset County Cricket Club Museum to talk about 30 years as the Observer and Guardian's cricket correspondent with the one and only Vic Marks. It's the... It's the... It's the... It's the, it's the Spin! I'm Emma John and this is The Spin, the cricket podcast which has ditched our usual studio and our lovely tabletop game of Test Match for the Somerset Cricket Museum and a view of the Quantocks. Yes, I'm at Taunton and with me is former England spin bowler and legend of both Somerset County Cricket Club and The Guardian. He also happens to be one of the nicest men in cricket. It is, of course, Vic Marks. No pressure, Vic, but we're hoping this is going to be your best performance at Taunton since taking five for 39 for England in a World Cup match against Sri Lanka. Well, I doubt I can match that, Emma, but it's lovely to be here and welcome to the, to the West Country. Thank you. Thank you for hosting us. <laughs> well, it's not my club, but it's a fine museum. <laughs> it's a beautiful museum. We are surrounded by lovely uh, pictures and mementos and memorabilia. This might be a special show, but we still need a loosener. And today's loosener is a classic. Sorry, I've read that wrong. Today's opener is classics. Vic, you mentioned in your book that reading <laughs> classics at Oxford hasn't been terribly useful in your cricket career. Um, I'm just trying to think of ways in which it has been useful well not at all in my cricket career well I think it's in my writing career I occasionally pluck out the old classical illusion to give the pretense that I understood what I was studying all those years ago but it's only a pretense okay well we're about to find out oh no (laughs) we've translated some commentary from some of the biggest moments of the summer into Latin and we would like you to identify what's happening so um, here's an easy here's an easy one for you. Uh, Anglia spolia opima margine minimissimo vicit. Well, someone's won by a very small margin. Yes, <laughs> that is brilliant. England, um, probably. Yes, England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, I think you might. I think you might be able to get this one. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not uh, so sure. Australia kinem retinuit. They've retained the ashes, sadly. Very good. Uh, Is there much more of this, Emma? There's a a couple more. Again, ones I think you'll get. Somerset, regium loniniense tropeum unam diem durantem 
expugnavit. Well, Somerset will do something one day. I don't know when. <laughs> Somerset have won the Royal London One Day Oh, Cup. right. Oh, yes, of course. Um, okay. Yeah, but that's not the one they want. That's not the one they want. That's not the one we want right now. No. Very last one. Jack Leach, specula, turgit. Well, I imagine he's wiping his glasses. <laughs> you see? You do remember your classic. Well, sort of. But anyway, um, I knew it would come in useful one day. Today was that day. So we should say thank you to the Vice Master of Downing College. Dr. Paul Millett is responsible for those Latin translations. So, Well, they must be impeccable. Then I thought it might be are. Daniel Norcross. <laughs> No, we went to the top for this Yeah, one. obviously. <laughs> he will be very impressed with you, Dave. I don't think so. <laughs> but, well, that's one way to start. Plenty of sports people are still in the middle of their career when they write their autobiography. You retired from professional cricket three decades ago and have been a writer ever since. Your book is full of great stories, so why hadn't you written them earlier? Well, no one asked me to, really. I mean... <laughs> I see it, this book, um, which is called Original Spin, as a sequel to Marks Out of Eleven, which you may not have read. I haven't read it, but I do still think it's one of the greatest titles for a cricket yeah, book well, of all time. Yeah, it's a pity about what... Anyway, that, that was uh, an old-fashioned tour book about a very interesting tour, actually. It was England's tour to India when everything happened Mrs Gandhi got assassinated. I didn't play much cricket, but there was so much going on that there was actually a tour book there. It's a format that doesn't really exist anymore, and there's no market for tour books. But I was asked to write that by a guy called Derek Wyatt, who was a publisher who played one match for England at rugby. And glory be, about 35 years later, I ended up having supper with him. In the meantime, he'd been a Labour MP for about 15 years, but almost by mistake when he got voted in in 1990, whenever the Labour landslide was, 92 or 97, 97. 97. He popped back into publishing and we had supper and um, he persuaded me, well, why don't you write another one? And I like to think, so it is a sequel, but it just took a while to be eked out. <laughs> 35 years later. <laughs> yes, yes. The sequel I'm not we've sure, all been waiting for. I'm not sure we can make it to a trilogy. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, well, we've, uh, you know, we've also discussed your other magnum opus before on this podcast, the Choose oh, Your Own Adventure book, Ultimate One Day Cricket yeah, Match. Yeah, and you've won it, haven't you? Didn't you, Jeff? Jeff's your director. <laughs> he, he won. He did get through to the end of the book. and Well, in this particular book, you either won or lost the game because you are captain of England. Did you win, Emma? Uh, <laughs> I didn't make the right decisions. <laughs> That's very unusual. <laughs> uh, so you had a lot to choose from with 35 years to think about it. What stories didn't make it into the well, book? Well, only the ones I forgot. <laughs> um, I hadn't been thinking about it for the last 35 years, if we're honest. There's some stories that I wouldn't want to repeat from, you know, distant tours, perhaps. So it's not quite a reveal all. Did you, I mean, uh, you were writing about the period covered by the Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll Tour. Exactly, yes. So but, there are a few but, stories from those that haven't well, made Well, obviously, them. how can I possibly remember anything on those tours? Or that, <laughs> we'll stick with one tour, that tour. Um, yeah, well, there's a, a few brief recollections, but nothing too saucy uh, from those tours. Although that's, that's not going to sell any books, is it? <laughs> um, and there's a lot about what happened here at Taunton. Because for those who were interested in Somerset cricket at that time. And there were quite a few because of all the big names we had. 
it spread beyond the county interest in Somerset in those days because of the presence of Viv, who we suddenly realised was the best player in the world before anyone else, which is quite a treat. Ian Botham was here. The cameras were always here during those early 80s, late 70s period. So it was quite an exciting time. And it was quite interesting to just sit down after several decades and sort of piece that all together. But I hadn't been planning it, as I say, for 35 years. It, it was, but it's odd. You go, to, you go to old scorecards, and they're the bane of any writer's life because all these stories that you've had logged away and that you've been retelling probably to the great sort of boredom of everyone, but you retell them anyway, these absolutely rock-solid... You look at a scorecard... And it completely undermines the whole tale. And there was one instance, I remember doing it about a match we played at Southport on a terrible wicket against Collingcroft before Helmets. And I've been telling everyone who wanted to listen, who would listen, how two old Somerset stores, Merv Kitchen, who became a test umpire, and Graham Burgess were batting just before me, and Merv was taking his teeth out and putting him in his blazer. And they were, they were so doom-laden. Merv was saying to Graham Burgess... He's going to kill us. <laughs> we won't see that ball. The wicket's all over the place. I'm done for. <laughs> and um, Budgie was, was agreeing uh, fervently. And I'm next in after that. And I'm thinking, I've got to get out of here. So I looked at the scorecard. Graham Burgess wasn't playing. <laughs> he wasn't in Southport. So you kind of create these. I mean, history is probably made like this. You create these stories that gain absolute truth. And then you go to a damn scorecard and say, well, that can't be right, because <laughs> he wasn't there. <laughs> this will ruin your after-dinner speaking circuit. <laughs> well, yeah, but I suspect, <laughs> you know, I think Neville Cardis got over that. <laughs> uh, the real truth still exists. But that happens quite often. You know, you hear people, cricketers especially, recount these great deeds of the past. Yeah. And it might apply to their own performances. And you actually look at it, well, actually, he got 12, not 113 that he seemed to be telling you about. So that, that was chastening, actually. Was it? Well, in the sense as, that... As a newspaper well, journalist, check, I yeah. it <laughs> you better check these things out. Um, well, let's go back even further. I was reading about your bucolic upbringing in a South Somerset village. Were you the only England player of your time who could drive a tractor, do you think? Well, my time? Oh, I don't know. I can tell you, tractor driving is not as easy as it looks. Oh, is it not? Well, going forwards is easy. Going backwards with a trailer. Difficult, yeah. Very difficult. Got to go the opposite way, haven't it's, you? And it is incredibly difficult. Way. And, you know, as a farmer's son, I watched the cowman, Arthur. He was a genius in this very confined space with corners here, there and there, tractor trailer, bales of hay to feed the cattle with. And the way he manoeuvred it was just astonishing, which was way beyond me. And I can just about remember, occasionally, when I was obviously I'd learnt to pass my test, I had to go and take some cattle into Yeovil Market. So I had a Land Rover and a little trailer on behind, a little horse box type of thing. And it was awful. It was about a seven-mile drive to Yeovil, all very straightforward, unless I met something in the lanes getting out onto the main road where I would just be a waste of time even to contemplate reversing and having got to the market there was no way that I could I could just only go in one direction forwards so I wasn't a very skillful um, agricultural worker stroke tractor driver but I, I did you know a bit of chain harrowing the odd bit of ploughing perhaps uh, well let's talk about your other driving because I hadn't realised until I read your book that you started out as a batsman yeah yeah I played for England schools as a batsman school I was a batsman who bowled a bit of off spin first couple two three years at Somerset I was definitely here as a batsman uh, who barely bowled even in the second team 
And then it sort of evolved at university. In the end, even I knew that I would get in the university team because I played England schools and Chris Tavery, who was my exact contemporary, he'd played in that team as well. So we were sort of slightly earmarked that we should get into the university side, which was fantastic, fun, and a great opportunity to play against all these top players. But then I looked around and saw who our spinners were, or our spinner was, and, you know, even I, who was not a very forceful character, may have mentioned the captain, I think I could probably bowl as well as this bloke. <laughs> you, can, you can play another batsman if you like. <laughs> um, so I started bowling there, and that and that's where Somerset started to get a bit more interesting, because batsmen, in a way, were two a penny. You, there's plenty of them around. But bowlers are harder to find. And they would have perked up when they saw... Only at the parks, but, you know, all the county players were playing. I was bowling quite a few overs and getting a few people out. And that changed the type of cricketer I became. Also changed the type of batsman I became. I, you know, I, was, I became less correct and a bit more frenetic, a bit more aggressive when you had the ballast of being a bowler. The first two or three seasons at Somerset, if I was playing in the first team, which I would have done sort of sporadically in, say, 75, 6, maybe 7... I usually to bat above Vian because I was a batsman. Both would be just that changed fairly quickly. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, well, so you, anyway, you joined them. I think as a full time professional after university in seventy yeah. eight. Seventy nine, right? actually, because I was four years at university. So yeah. seventy nine was the very first year they won. Yeah. A trophy. Yeah. yeah. Coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I mean, they should have won in seventy eight. We had an epic weekend in 78 we were in the lord's final we lost to sussex next day we were down here playing against essex to win the john player league if we won we won it we lost by two runs or something so we were very close then and we'd had one or two in 77 very close calls Uh, but 79 40 years ago essex won two trophies their first two trophies i think and we won two trophies and essex won the championship so there's a bit of symmetry here. In the Essex have won the T20. Uh, Somerset won the Royal London Londinium Cup. <laughs> and uh, the championship, as we speak, is being decided just beyond these walls. It looks like it's going to be probably Essex, but it could be it's Essex or Somerset. So there is a weird symmetry between 79 and 2019. There is. The other thing that happened, the year of, therefore, the mm. year of your first full-time professional summer, uh, that was the year Somerset got thrown out of the yeah, B&H Cup in disgrace. Right. Was that also a coincidence? Well, it reflected, I think, a desperation to win something. <laughs> it genuinely did. I mean, we, we were so disappointed and felt we'd let, let everyone down in 78. And it was a, it was a clear mistake, we, but we got to Worcester in the Benson and Hedges. It was the last zonal match. And someone worked out. And it wasn't Pete Roebuck, and it wasn't me, I don't think. Everyone assumed it was one of us. It wasn't. <laughs> There's no scorecard for that. No. <laughs> you but, can't uh, check. But, no, that's true. But someone had worked out that if we declared on naught for naught or one for naught, we could not be topped at the top of that table. So we would qualify for the next round. And the first day it rained. Miserable. Second day, it cleared up a bit. There was about 100 spectators in. This is part justification. <laughs> and, well, Brian Rose, who's now our president, uh, consulted a bit with Lords. He rang up Lords and had a brief discussion, as I remember, with the, with the team about it. Only one man said, no, we shouldn't do this. And he was right. Who was a chap called Derek Taylor, who was our wicketkeeper at the time. But none of, none of the rest of us really... Well, 
said, no, you can't do this. Uh, so he declared. Although even then, we weren't sure he was going to. We had, he went out to bat with Peter Denning. And the first ball, Viv Richards was batting three. He had his pads on, so he was ready to go in. You know, he didn't, no one quite knew whether he would do it. He faced the first ball. We thought, is he going to walk off? No, he didn't walk off. It was a no ball. He played out the rest of the over. And then he walked off <laughs> uh, with Peter Denning following. And um, we had to go out and field for about 10 balls while they knocked off the, the two runs they required for victory. And we felt dreadful. We almost immediately regretted it, I think. Uh, we felt like pariahs. We'd been the bright young things prior to that. And then it rained and rained and rained for the next 10 days. We were in Edgbaston, it rained. We were cooped up in hotels, getting more and more miserable. Uh, and then we came back to Taunton for a Sunday league game. First time sort of back in Taunton. There'd been quite a hullabaloo, as you can imagine. You know, what, what are they doing? Ruining the game. Uh, we went again to Hampshire. I can't remember which way around it was. But anyway, Rose and Denning went out to bat. Uh, to great cheers. Uh, Rose got 25 in a match we won, but when he was dismissed, he came back in, and it was as if he got 150. <laughs> the crowd erupted. Uh, great celebrations at this innings of 25. Great sort of show of support. So that's what got us through, in a way. He so what knew- you're saying is you kind of got away with it. We sort of got away with it. There was a vote amongst the counties about whether we should be chucked out of the competition, which we were in the end. It went 17-1. And the one wasn't Somerset, <laughs> it was Derbyshire. <laughs> Good old Derbyshire. <laughs> um, uh, and so it was, it was a terrible mistake. It reflected a desperation on our part to win something for the first time ever. But it also, I guess, looking back, I mean, I'm not, it was, a, as I say, it was not the right thing to do, but it didn't damage us at all in anything. It bound us all together once we got, we had to do something, win something then. But at the time, for about a fortnight, you thought our careers were blighted forever for doing such a dastardly act. And we got the rules changed as well. And like you say, you went on to feature in many one-day finals. I was tickled to discover that in those days you were so relaxed, you used to let celebrities come and join you in the Well, we did, yeah, room. amazing, isn't it? Before one final, we had supper with John Cleese, who's from Western Superman. And he, I think it was the first one we won, actually, in 79. He seemed to know his cricket, and he came and he just sat in our dressing room very quietly throughout the whole game. You know, he wasn't making us laugh or anything. <laughs> and then I'm pretty sure at a later final, Geoffrey Archer, who's also a West Country boy, went to, went to Wellington School, not Wellington College, <laughs> Wellington School in Wellington. See, he was in our dressing room too for the bulk of uh, another final. Not quite so quietly, I don't think. Oh, really? No. Did he <laughs> make his presence felt? Well, I think he couldn't help himself. He used to turn up and play in benefit games, Geoffrey Archer. And um, I'm pretty sure at one end-of-season benefit game, we were going quite well in the Sunday League. And he asked our cricket chairman at the time, called Roy Kerslake, who was a very important member of the team, if not a player, but he sort of ran the cricket. Geoffrey Archer asked him, you know, if you're not in contention, do you think I could play in the last Sunday League game? He wasn't a very good cricketer. He's run fast. And then foolishly, we were playing Lancashire, and foolishly, Roy Kerslake said no. Because <laughs> I'd like to have seen Geoffrey Archer facing Colin Croft. It would be very good for him. <laughs> I think we'd all have played. <laughs> um, but anyway, so yeah, we had that sort of um, following then. You know, it's quite a good following now, actually. Yeah. You were first selected for England in 1980, and according to Wisden, your first test wicket was Sikander Bakht of Pakistan at Headingley in 1982. 
or was it? Vic? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you've you've read the book, <laughs> and um, in all probability, <laughs> although one can never be absolutely a hundred percent sure. <laughs> He didn't hit it. In all probability, he didn't hit it. And it only caused about a decade of ill feeling between <laughs> England and Pakistan. Imran was captaining Pakistan, and this merely confirmed his notion that independent or neutral umpires or umpires from not the, the same country was a good idea. And he was right about that. Uh, so I'm in sure. that way, you prompted yeah, you know, yeah. one of the prompted ICC's a... greatest inventions. Exactly. Um, but it, it was... It was Vic's a, lasting legacy. It was a crucial moment. You know, it was a very tight game and we went on to win it. And Sikander Bat was not a great batsman, but Imran was still in and it kind of got the innings to a close more or less. So, yeah, I do apologise for that decade of, <laughs> you know, Shaka Rana and all sorts of ill-tempered <laughs> matches thereafter. Um, but it was unwitting. <laughs> as well as Imran, you played alongside and against some pretty big characters. We could fill a whole podcast with each of them, but could you just give me the first word that comes to your head when I give you each of these names? Oh, God. Uh, we'll start with the most obvious, Surrey and Botham. Not a man... Oh, that's too many words. <laughs> <laughs> Confident. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes. I mean, I like that word. Joel Garner? Laid back. I remember him being literally laid back. We had, you know, in our dressing room, a sort of long, thin bench there under your pegs. And he's a huge man, lovely man. We always thought he was too soft, you know, on opposition batsmen in particular. (laughs) But he had the capacity on a bench that was probably no more than 12 to 18 inches wide, to fall asleep. It's amazing. <laughs> and he also had the capacity. We play he was brilliant at finals day. And he never never got near winning the man of the match. But he'd always get three for fifteen or something like that. And he would just disappear on the eve of the match. Don't know where he went. And he'd come back and he'd explain, you know, better five hours of good sleep than nine or ten tossing and turning, he'd say. So I had no idea what he got to. <laughs> he'd turn up the next day and every match even though no one seemed to notice because Viv would usually get 100 or whatever, he would produce match-winning figures, three for, three for 15. So, so whatever so. he was doing, it was working. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, next one, Bob Willis. Bob Willis gangling. Gangling. He gave you your, one of your first nicknames, didn't he? <laughs> well, he did. Did so, it last? Did it stick, not, this nickname? Well, not really. Only just through a very small seam of cricketers he you know with terrific piercing wit uh nickname is skid <laughs> this is before we went on tour 1982 so there was a he liked nicknames so graham fowler was foxy i think he gave him that uh Tavere was rowdy at the time i mean just within that england team praying was there sugsy why was Pring sexy? Well, from the Madness group, I think. Pring he looked like Sugsy, I suppose. Like I don't know. I don't know, but he wow. was. Wow, OK. I mean, he liked nickname. He, he was... I, I mean, I admire Bob. as he, might, he picked me to play for England as well. Uh, that helps. He was an odd mixture because by the time I got there, he was the captain. But he, half of him wanted to be in the back of the bus, you know, having a good time, being mischievous, etc. Which he'd probably been throughout most of his England career, but now he's given responsibility. But he may not be the most brilliant captain, but he led by example. I think, I mean, gangling's not a good description, but he had his body. 
you know, you'd see him absolutely knackered, maybe in Australia, bowling 25 overs in the day. And, you know, he's got this frail top, thin arms, wonky legs and knees. He should never have been able to bowl fast or get 300 test wickets. But by almost by will, he did. Great commitment and effort and, and lots of training as well. So um, he was impressive. couple more of these. And Martin Crowe. Emotional. Interesting. Was he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He wasn't a machine, although he wanted to be a perfect batting machine in a way. And he was at times, but he sought perfection almost to a fault. But it sort of transpired when he played with us, which is mostly early on in his career. He couldn't operate in a vacuum. He was, like most of us, affected by the people around and whether the team was in a good place or a bad place. That would affect him. Uh, I mean, that's a virtue in many ways, although a lot of the really great players, they kind of create their own vacuum and they bat in exactly the same way and they just go out and get their runs and they don't really take any notice of what's going on. But Martin, certainly at the start, was very affected by the mood around him. When he came over to Somerset in 1984, he'd only played a handful of tests, but he was obviously very good. Ian was captain. We toured New Zealand the winter before, so we got, made sure we got to know him because we'd signed him up. Got on well with Ian, fine with me, of course. And then Ian said, right, you must come and stay with me in Taunton. And what does Martin, well, what can Martin do? Oh, right, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> anyway, he came in 1984, and for the first three or four weeks, he could barely score a run. I mean, we knew he was very good, but he couldn't get a run. He was agonising about this. And also, he wasn't of the same... His lifestyle did not equate exactly with what Ian's <laughs> lifestyle was like. But he was living in the same house, and it was everything wasn't working quite right. And then I remember seeing dear Martin, actually, at that World Cup final, when he was almost saying farewell to the cricketing world in Melbourne. He was around the press area, and I must go and see, I hadn't seen him for ages, but I must go and see him. But it was a weird occasion because he, he was suffering, and everyone knew he was not going to be around for much longer. And New Zealand were in the final, and but anyway, went back and said hello, and uh, he was very warm. And he actually made what was slightly uncomfortable for meeting. He made it actually easier by his own understanding of the situation and I said to him I've always admired you um, when you came over to us all those years ago and you were staying with Ian who was the biggest name in sport then how it was you had the sort of balls to say look I'm, I'm gonna have to move out how did you do that he said well I waited till he got in the bath he said so he couldn't do anything without it while he was there <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I thought well anyway. and, and anyway he, he then he well yeah, not just because he moved out but within a few weeks after that or a week after that uh, he went to Bath and he's just started scoring stacks of runs and we saw we knew he was astonishingly good but he, he was um, he played like a genius for, for the rest of that season more or less but he was quite a complicated emotional character he wasn't a clinical even though he wanted to be a perfect batsman and even though he made the very clinical decision to uh, talk to both in the bath which well, was very pretty shrewd wasn't very it what's he going to do in the bath i was yeah <laughs> i was so we've mentioned the famous sex and drugs and rock and roll tour uh, of 84 yeah. yeah we move on from there england now. went to new zealand <laughs> oh. partied with elton john lost to the kiwis for the first time in their history 
the press reported that there was pot smoking in the dressing room after the defeat in Christchurch. That's where they went wrong. <laughs> Is that, was that incorrect? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That was definitely wrong. So that was the one thing that was wrong about the press reporting on, on that tour. But the rest of it was... Well, no, uh, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> um, I always remember the Watergate stuff about non-denial denials and stuff. Like, do you remember? And I do remember, I remember Bob Willis was captaining that tour and it became a bit stressful. But I remember them latching on to that allegation because that, that was the one that was not true. <laughs> so we denied that. Or that was denied <laughs> extremely vigorously. We didn't have a very large media operation to protect us at the time. <laughs> but um, did Elton John, you know, introduce you to a world you didn't know before? Well, <laughs> me and Elton John, as you need Foxy's book for, for all this, Graham <laughs> Well... I mean, we didn't have a long and lasting relationship, but I do remember, obviously, I remember he had planned his tour of New Zealand around our one-day international schedule. So if we were in Wellington, he was in Wellington. And very often he was playing on the night that we'd just played a one-day international. And we went to, most of us, not all of us, but we went, we were sort of backstage or on the side of the stage three times in a row in Christchurch, Wellington and Auckland. So that was quite exciting, I suppose. But I didn't spend quite as much time alongside him as, say, uh, Foxy probably and Ian and, and one or two of the others. I remember him saying, actually, he was involved with Watford Football Club at the time. And I remember at some point him saying, you know, dear Ian, if he behaved like that when he was at Watford, he wouldn't last a week. <laughs> he wouldn't be allowed to. <laughs> um, but having said that, I don't think that tour was a sort of monastic expedition. But yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I quite enjoyed being along the side there. It was a new world for me. So the other, <laughs> let's face it, scandal you were smack bang in the middle of oh, that one, no. uh, yeah. was a massive fallout between Somerset players, captained by... Peter Roebuck at the time, and the club's three-star players, Joel, Viv and Sarian. Mm -hmm. You devote a chapter to it in your book, and kudos for the title of that chapter, by the way. Trouble over Bridgewater. <laughs> nice punning. Uh, <laughs> was that fallout entirely predictable, do you think? Uh, well, you might say that in hindsight. It wasn't quite so predictable at the time. And it was horrendous, in 1986 in particular, because the club was tearing itself apart. I mean, one thing I always... <laughs> Pete and I were very close. We'd grown up exact contemporaries, roomed together, drove together, got lost together and all that stuff. Ian, we all got along. The odd thing is that I always want to stress is that Ian and Pete Roebuck, for the first... If we all joined in 74, for the first seven, eight years of our time here, they got on fine. In fact, they enjoyed one another's company, partly through the massive contrast. They have great arguments about anything, really, politics, the whole lot. But with quite a lot, of, a lot of mutual respect and good fun. And Pete wrote books with Ian. So it's not as if they were at daggers drawn from day one onwards. In fact, there was another guy called Phil Slocum who Boss didn't get on with, but, and Pete didn't get on particularly well with. So he was on the outside, in a sense, and Pete was more on, on the inside. And same with Viv. Pete and Viv were much closer than I was with Viv, partly because... They were living in Taunton. I'd go home, you know. So it wasn't a long-standing feud that kept bubbling, bubbling, bubbling for years. And Sounds it, more like when good friends fall out and it's a well, there's an element of that. There's trauma. an element of that. 
it all kind of partly hinged on, or a lot of it hinged on captaincy and the way the club was going and, 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 and some of the captaincy decisions along the way. Ian captained for a couple of years here in the first year. I mean, he's playing for England all the time, so that makes life difficult in a way you wouldn't imagine now. You forget, you know, 1981, England's great sort of summer, I think he played 12 championship games for Somerset, which now seems unthinkable, but that's the way it was. Ian was made captain. I was his vice-captain, which wasn't... A, it's a vice-captain is an overrated position, I, I know that. Um, so there's debate about whether Ian should have been made captain, in, but you couldn't really take it away from him. He just led us, because Brian Rose had been injured to the another Lord's final victory. He did it for a couple of years, and the second of which we came bottom, despite everyone, you know, Viv and Ian scoring stacks of runs. And then he was replaced by Pete, and he led the side, Pete led the side with Ian and Viv, etc., for one year, at the end of which the club came to the decision to replace Viv and Joel with Martin Crow. That was the equation. Now, that's when everything started to go horrendously bitter. I don't think Pete had actually originated that idea, but as captain, he clearly had a big influence on it. And what I've always subsequently thought is, actually, it seems like it was a straight sort of choice between the young Martin, or still relatively young Martin, who'd made such a good impression. Viv, who could be a bit aloof, but was still a terrific player, or not aloof so much as Moody, in the eyes particularly of some of the younger players who hadn't grown up with him. He was quite intimidating, so it seemed. Some of those younger players kind of blamed their lack of performance for, oh, it's difficult to play with. Of course, when Viv went, their performance was identical, but that's by the by. So there was this apparent choice between Viv and an ageing Joel and the youngish Martin Crow. Now, they went for Martin, but actually, I'm not sure that choice was quite how it really was, because I think Ian had a big impact in that decision. I don't think if Ian had been around, they would have come to that conclusion, curiously, because it was a very tricky side for Pete to captain. You've got huge characters who were not necessarily buying into the way Pete wanted to be in complete control. They weren't buying into that. But probably the most difficult for him to captain was Ian rather than Viv and Joel. Just on the sort of petty things of, you know, when people turn up and, you know, tick the various boxes you're supposed to do in any sort of workplace. So, in a sense, I think Viv and Joel were victims of Ian's excesses and... That's what drove the momentous, what seemed momentous at the time, decision to to sack Viv and Joel and replace them with Martin in the certain knowledge that Ian would leave as well because he was bound to do that. I wouldn't have done it. I told Pete I wouldn't do it. He was happy to confront those sort of situations. He was much more confrontational than I I was. Uh, um, so well, as you describe caused, yourself in yes. the book, you are the conciliator, <laughs> yeah. which I think which sounds like it failed. should be your superhero name. Well, except Vic that Marks, I the conciliator. I wasn't a very effective conciliator in 1986. <laughs> um, it's easy uh, marshalling a, a whole group of talented Guardian journalists. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to talk about that. We need to take a break so, so that you can listen to some adverts and Vic can show me around all the trophies in the Somerset Museum. So we'll probably be back really soon. Did you know that the first official Women's Cricket World Cup was held in 1973, two years before the men's? Or that a whole new bowling technique came into play to get around hoop skirts? There are lots of things to love and learn about women's cricket. 
As a part of its push to get everyone playing cricket, NatWest has partnered with The Guardian Labs to tell more stories about the game. Follow them at theguardian.com forward slash natwest dash cricket. This message was paid for by NatWest. Welcome back to this special episode of The Spin. Today, we're celebrating the careers of Vic Marks. Vic was a professional cricketer at Somerset 16 years, but he's been a professional journalist almost twice that long. In fact, Vic, don't think that we forget these things. It is 30 years since you swapped bat and ball for pen and ink. And we wanted to mark the occasion... So <laughs> producer Jeff is just doing a long walk down the museum <laughs> with a little cake for oh, you. Well, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a remarkable present. I mean, I was hoping for a watch. <laughs> <laughs> but this will do nicely. That's very uh, The Observer. And you England will notice... World I Cup. can't read that. It says England, in win Jamaica? The World, England win the World Cup. It's for the, oh, 30 the, years on. The cake decoration is a newspaper that's folded over, so you can't quite see all of the writing. You'll also notice the deliberate mistake, of course. England win the World Cup reported in The Observer. Because it took place on Sunday. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you yeah. were asked by The Observer's then-editor, David Hun, to become the paper's cricket correspondent in 1989. And your very first series was an England tour of the West Indies, which every journalist knows is the best gig in cricket. <laughs> was it hard being the other side of the boundary rope? Well, uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I turned up with uh, a pad and a pencil and a floppy hat. And that was about it, really. I mean, there were just a few laptops. They were just coming in the old Tandys. And I'd never written a match report in my life. <laughs> and the worst place to write match reports is in the Caribbean because you're against the clock. You know, the game finishes at 11 o'clock at night when the paper has to go to bed. <laughs> or if that's the right term. So, I mean, I was so naive, along with Tim Delisle, who you'll know. Another one of our spin regulars. Absolutely. Well, Tim was making his debut for The Independent on Sunday. I was with The Observer. Uh, Shield Berry had left The Observer to join a paper called The Correspondent that didn't last very long. And our first outings, as I remember, were a one day, well, there's a test match where England amazingly won and Tim and I disgraced ourselves by behaving like fans. <laughs> Was you know, that the last time you've ever cheered in the press box? More or less, I think, because <laughs> we got quite a stern ticking off. I mean, it is, it's weird. If you aren't used to it and you come into a, a press box, an England press box, you don't cheer, clap, or you might just raise an eyebrow occasionally. <laughs> That's about it. But we didn't know that. And England, to everyone's amazement, won this game in Jamaica and along the way you know they were getting ahead of the game took another wicket Tim and I would leap out of our seats and start cheering and then suddenly got this sort of cold stares coming from everyone else followed by don't do that it's basically the first yeah. it's the first lesson you you learn yeah. as a new well, journalist yeah, isn't it in the press exactly. box i think you've everybody makes that mistake once yeah well you've probably made it two or three times i imagine that. <laughs> i've made it in front of you <laughs> um so that was an education and then the following week as i described there's a one day international a one day international in the west indies is tough going to report and Tim and I get our comeuppance because it turns into a very tight game. But it seems all along that West Indies are going to win. So you've got to start writing fairly early to get your copy phoned through, which takes a, you know, 25 minutes at the best of times. These are the days before yeah, email, people. Yeah. <laughs> so we're 
frantically writing away as this one day comes to a conclusion and suddenly we look up and West Indies somehow faltered rather and they need three to win I think off the last ball well the odds are I mean we've got both of us well I can't actually speak for Tim but I'm pretty sure he'd confirm this we've got a thousand polished words here all of which describe a famous West Indies victory suddenly West Indies need Three to win off the last ball. Well, thankfully, dear old Angus Fraser propels something which Ian Bishop hits for four. And once again, basically, Tim and I are leaping out of our seats cheering. <laughs> Not because England have won, because they haven't. But our copy made some sense. So that was all in a very short space of time. In fact, eight days. It was a trial by fire. <laughs> it was, really. What was the best piece of advice you were ever given about match reporting? Did people help you out? Well, not really. Um... It was more trial and error. I mean, I remember David Hun was only briefly the sports editor there writing a lovely letter early on with a few handy hints. Like, probably could put the score in, you know, one of the first three or four paragraphs. Other than that, it really was, especially in the West, it was a lot of trial and error, really. And the only other advice I could ever give anyone is just try and get it there on time, roughly the right length, and they'll start to like you in the office. (laughs) And if it's any good, that's a bonus. (laughs) I've always wondered, watching you in the press box, you do seem very calm and you you start writing about tea time maybe but but re- or maybe an hour before the close you you never look flustered you never look like you're starting well, too early how do you keep so zen <laughs> well i've done it for quite a long time now i've also had to do it more frequently having sort of gone from the luxury of being the observer's correspondent to doing it with the guardian now yeah you used to have just um, a one day a week job yeah which so, is pretty cushy. <laughs> well, looking back, it wasn't too bad. <laughs> I, we didn't appreciate it at the time. We were called the Bucket and Spade Boys a Sunday. And there were lots of them. You know, there were about 10 Sunday paper journalists in the Caribbean on that tour, probably. Well, the odd thing, the bonus of doing it every day, you'll understand all this, is that you fret. You can't afford to fret if you're writing every day. Otherwise, you go mad. So perfection sometimes has to go missing <laughs> but you've got to, got to get there yeah um, Andy Ball has a phrase do. which yeah. is don't let great be the enemy of good <laughs> yeah yeah well that's worth I'll make a note yeah. well I think he got it from somewhere else <laughs> yeah yeah well look we've discussed some of the big personalities you've shared a dressing room with but let's mm. talk about some of the people you've shared the press box and the commentary box with so what's the first word that comes to mind when you hear these names CMJ Polite. <laughs> Very polite. Oh, well, underrated virtue, politeness. Yeah. Uh, he's totally mad as well. I could have gone for mad. <laughs> I mean, in the most endearing way. But, you know, I think everyone realises now that he was only really in control of his life when he was behind a microphone. <laughs> and there was total, the potential for total chaos beyond that. I mean, he was never, he, he had trouble being on time, obviously. And I always remember him telling me, uh, he lived in Sussex, West Sussex, I think, and he'd drive up to the Oval very often. But he'd often do so with a bowl of cereal lodged between his knees as he got into his car, full of milk as well, <laughs> no. uh, in order to try and get there on time. But And he just didn't like to waste a minute. That's why he was always late, you see, because if he was meeting someone at 10 o'clock, he used to drive Mike Selvey wild, the long-standing golfing partners. You know. He had a template saying, where the, well, sort of, where the devil are you? <laughs> Which he just pressed every time. <laughs> So CMJ, he could not wait. So he would, he'd have, you know, 90 seconds spare before he had to meet someone. He'd start to write a postcard or something like that. <laughs> or he'd start to find, try and find a postcard before he wrote it. 
and he was very funny, uh, wittingly funny, and unwittingly sometimes, but mostly wittingly. Next one, blowers. <sighs> well, it's not an adjective. I was going to say, just say rogue, um, but, you know, <laughs> a lovable rogue. I mean, he wasn't a rogue in some senses. In the very um, strict legal sense, he is <laughs> no, not no, a rogue, we'd no. like to be no, clear. He knows his cricket, absolutely, but he is the ultimate freelance. He's wonderful. He's written for every paper. He's broadcast for every outlet. Even now, he's out there treading the boards, selling his books. He's just a wonderful, ridiculous, larger-than-life old pro who knows cricket inside out, but likes to get ahead of the game as well. I mean, he's... <laughs> I think his zest for life is what... I mean, he should have died about three times, I should think. <laughs> uh, he's, and uh, he's still going strong, and he's just loves life and I think that's what keeps him going <laughs> and what about somebody whose name I always link yours with which is Jonathan Agnew well <laughs> Jonathan Agnew he's another one who's in control of things when he's broadcasting uh, not always particularly in recent times entire control when he's not broadcasting <laughs> uh, <laughs> he is a sublime broadcaster and it's weird that he should occasionally, away from the commentary box or the microphone, commit a few schoolboy errors, <laughs> if you like. But I've seen him, I've admired his work hugely in that you know that he's, he should be panicking, that someone's just come and sat next to him. He doesn't really know who it is. And he's got to conduct an interview stroke conversation from scratch. And he's like that sort of swan paddling away, no doubt, furiously, but you can't see that. And he's so relaxed and he's a terrific interviewer because he listens. Like you're looking into my eyes, Emma. <laughs> <laughs> he will look into the eyes and he will have a conversation. So his capacity to do that, he, he's quite brilliant at that. And he's good fun as well. <laughs> he's done it for a long time now, but, you know, look at round pegs and round holes. That's, that's what he's damn good at. Yeah. So... Let's just reflect on how cricket has changed in your lifetime. Because we all tend to be nostalgics about this game and we often like to claim that the sport was better in the good old days, but we've just lived through an unforgettable summer. Do you think we should be a bit kinder about the game we love in its modern form? Well, I certainly think if I was... You know, everyone always asks you, when would you... Are you glad you played in your own? This is the time to play as a, as a professional cricketer. Partly for the remuneration, partly... You know, if you're an England player, central contest, all those things make it much more attractive, both financially but also in terms of managing your time. I think cricket is much more entertaining now. I mean, there's, I mean, I'm post sixties, but everyone kind of has this warm feeling about the sixties. Cricket in sixties was incredibly boring. You look at some of the matches, the draws, draw after draws. The, Rate of scoring, they were panicking like fury. Boyce was getting dropped for batting slowly. They were, they actually reacted quite well. They got all these overseas players in. They introduced one-day cricket. Cricket was in crisis in the 60s, but sometimes we look back at it as this golden age of Cowdery and Gravely. In fact, they reacted very quickly to try and remedy the fact that it was dying and very dull. So in that sense, I'm happy to be a modernist. But don't ask me about the 100. <laughs> well, I mean, I did wonder whether you think you'd have been a dangerous all-rounder in the shorter format. Well, I don't know. I might, I, I mean, slow bowlers and all that. You could, I could have 
we would have adjusted and we would have tried to like fury just imagine if ian was around now he'd be in for 2020 wouldn't he big blast the whole lot viv likewise it'd be fantastic and i'd have a go <laughs> what frightens me is that we've just had this fantastic summer it's been great and we've seen how that captures the imagination of not just your die-hard cricket fans but the broader vaguely sporting supporting public world cup Headingly tests, fantastic, interest generated. Far better than, I think, the 100 ever will. Now, the, my problem with the 100 is not so much the format. I, I mean, I like 2020, that really works. I think it's gimmicky, but it's the fact that we are going to have a domestic season that now has almost three months devoted to games of either 20 overs, 120 balls per innings, or 100 balls per innings. That's not a balanced diet. And it'll damage our cricket, I think, in the long term, because any young player with a brain will decide what I want to be good at. Well, I've got to be able to hit the ball out of the park and bowl four overs or 20 balls or whatever it is for less than 30 runs. That's all you're going to need to have to do to make a very good living. And that's the most straightforward way to go. That's where all the money is. So that really disturbs me. I also don't like the fact that here we are, Taunton, it's a special place, Taunton. But suddenly alienated for that, you know, no top cricket here. Oh, there'll be the 50-over stuff. I don't like the alienation of the show. We aren't Australia with just metropolises, three or four, five, six around the country. England's not like that. So there's great points like Chelmsford, Taunton, that kind of being cast to one side in a way that is an insult almost to the fans. There's masses of support outside of the big cities for cricket, who will be hugely frustrated by the way it's going. So I try not to be a curmudgeon, and I recognise that there's so many things that are better about test cricket. It's far more interesting now than it, it was even in the, when I was playing, which actually was quite a long time ago when you think about it. Um, far more interesting. There's lots of brilliant stuff going on, but I, I feel as if I'm bracketed as a curmudgeon because I don't like where they're going Uh, with the domestic season ahead in 2020. 2019 seems like a sort of final, wonderful culmination, but it's been squandered, I think, by this notion that somehow the 100 will will drive cricket forward. What drives cricket forward is stuff like we saw in the World Cup and test matches recently, or possibly even finals day, T20 finals day. That's, That's sufficient. You don't need this gimmicky, unproven collection of teams whose names we can't quite remember yet and uh, which has no teams which have no real allegiance to from any support set but they'll you know they'll market it and it'll probably work because it will be on telly and that may be deemed to be enough but I'm I'm a bit despondent about that. Well, Vic, you will never be a curmudgeon to us. (laughs) Before we go, I do owe our guest a massive thank you. And that's not just for chatting to us today, Vic, but also for the kindness you've shown me and all your colleagues over the years. One of my favourite things about this summer has been getting to sit by you in the press box, enjoying your company, listening to the uncensored version of Vic Marx's commentary. (laughs) If you've enjoyed any of Vic's stories, uh, there are plenty more left in his memoir, Original Spin. You'll find a link to more details in the description of this episode at theguardian.com. Our next episode will be our final for this series. So join me and a host of guests as we try to make sense of the crazy summer of cricket we've just lived through. And you never know, Michael Aston might just drop by. 
for Spin is supported by NatWest. To find out about how NatWest is making it easier for everyone to get involved in cricket, search NatWest Cricket.